Welcome to Beyond the Show, the podcast home of all things Cannabis Conference. My name is Eric Sandy, and I'm the digital editor of the Cannabis Group at GIE Media. It's April 29th, if you're listening to this episode on the day it's going live, and that means that Cannabis Conference prices are rising at midnight. My advice, run. Don't walk to CannabisConference.com to secure a discount of up to $500 off the full on-site rate. You're going to be there anyway. We're excited to see you, so save some money and register now and peruse our growing list of educational sessions and expert speakers across the three-day event. That's all at CannabisConference.com. My guest this week is Kareem Webb, CEO of Fourth Movement, and yes, one of the excellent leaders who will be speaking at the show in August. Kareem Webb is an entrepreneurial activist, and Fourth Movement is a Los Angeles-based firm that vets, trains, facilitates funding for, and partners with individuals from underserved communities to own and operate competitive retail businesses. Before founding Fourth Movement, Kareem co-founded PCF Restaurant Management, a franchisee of Buffalo Wild Wings. PCF has four restaurants in the L.A. area with four additional units in development. Kareem's leadership and advocacy for a more equitable restaurant industry earned him a spot on the 2021 NRN Power List. Kareem is also a venture partner in Slauson & Co., an early-stage venture capital firm investing in the tools, platforms, and people, aiding in small businesses' development, democratizing access to business ownership. At Cannabis Conference 2022, he'll be speaking on the panel, Turning Talk Into Action – how cannabis companies can develop meaningful and actionable social equity priorities. And that's what we talked about, teeing up a full panel discussion later this year in Las Vegas. So please enjoy my conversation with Kareem Webb. Well, hello, Kareem, and thank you so much for joining us on the show this week. Very glad to get a chance to talk with you about your work, Fourth Movement's work out in California, and about social equity in general, as uh, this conversation has been sort of an evolving thread in, in recent years, not even exclusively to cannabis, but, but certainly we're here to talk about cannabis today, uh, a few months out from Cannabis Conference 2022, where we will, again, pick up this conversation with you and some other folks on a panel out there in Las Vegas. Um, to begin, maybe uh, it'd be great if you could maybe describe Fourth Movement a little bit. Uh, share with the audience a bit about how it came to be and what some of the driving goals are for the organization. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start with where we get our name, Fourth Movement. And Dr. King talked about um, the experience of African-Americans in the United States that they were described in the form of a symphony. The first movement of that symphony would be the abolition of slavery, and the second would be civil rights, the third would be voting rights, and the fourth would be economic equality. And I, I came to the cannabis space really kind of through my franchise experience and civic engagement. I'm a Buffalo Wild Wings franchisee in LA and also very civically engaged, especially around at-risk youth, um, boys and men of color in and around South LA. And um, you know, also very, which makes you very engaged politically, civic engagement, the folks that are policymakers, city council people, state assembly people in the region, very familiar relationships, really kind of working on issues around underserved people, the same people um, and in the same communities that were over-policed um, or disproportionately impacted by cannabis arrest, for sure, um, same communities. And so um, when this social equity 
uh, idea came to be in LA. Um, you know, I had a chief of staff, one of the city council people reach out to me and say, Hey man, the way that you engage business, the way you develop young people, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I hope that you'll take a look at getting involved in this process. And so I did, um, we did, and we set up, um, you know, a structure and a business which became fourth movement, which we thought would attract capital in order to, um, you know, be able to stand up a scale and the size of a business that would be attractive to institutional capital, allowing us to help people who qualify for these licenses stand up best in class, sustainable businesses. And by doing so, hopefully they would make the kind of money and reinvest in our communities that would improve not only their outcomes, but outcomes in these same communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. Absolutely. And I know, um, you know, we have quite a, a large audience in California, certainly, and in, in Los Angeles, of course, um, at the risk of uh, going far down a, a path of, of maybe current events and, and recent headlines in L.A. over the past year. I know it's a complicated story uh, of, of the, the ongoing licensing process in L.A. Could you maybe bring us up to speed a little bit about what's going on with L.A.'s promise of social equity for prospective business owners. Um, I know there was a recent feature in the LA Times that I think got into some really good issues on this. And again, I realize it's there's a lot going on there and, and we're here to talk about a few things, but could you maybe describe for those outside of LA uh, how the city might be navigating this question? Well, the city is at a pivoting point. I mean, it's, you know, the, um, you know, the leader of BCR, executive director, uh, recently resigned, Cap Packer, um, they've got someone in interim, and I think, you know, the city is trying to determine who's going to lead it moving forward. And the policy has always, um, you know, really been poor. It, you know, it, it, the policy wasn't enacted in a way that was going to facilitate the goals of social equity, you know, and the people who are really responsible for bringing social equity to L.A. or the concept of, you know, having set aside licenses that will lead to people making more money to then repair the harm of the war on drugs. I mean, that's the idea of social equity all over the country. And it's a very difficult thing to, to, to legislate. It's difficult because, you know, people intended it to go to black and brown people, but those were the communities that were um, impacted the most and the people that were impacted the most, um, you know, in Los Angeles. Uh, within the city of LA. And we have a thing in California called Prop 209, where you can't identify race as a factor. So you try to legislate around that. But the majority of the people that got these social equity licenses aren't really the individuals that it was intended for. So that's one um, miss. And then I think also, um, you know, people who were lobbying and trying to figure out ways to get around the intended outcome um, and were successful, also lobbied for ways that helped uh, lobby for policy that enhanced their advantages. Uh, one of those policies was the necessity to have real estate in order to apply. So for the first 100 licenses that were um, to be allocated, in order to apply, you had to have real estate, which is the antithesis of, uh, you know, kind of the positioning of people who, you know, were in a position to qualify. You could, couldn't make more, less, more than $42,000 to qualify for one of these social equity licenses. How then are you supposed to be able to 
um, go to really competitive real estate um, and landlords who don't have FDIC loans, who own their buildings free and clear, who all of these things that are inherent because cannabis is not federally legal, it's inherent in the reality of it, and then acquire or secure real estate. Of course, that benefited folks who already own properties or were in families of people that own properties and properties in 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 desirable retail corridors. You know what I mean? So that that you know that's not where black and brown people are by and large. And so um, that policy in and of itself, and then um, the haphazard way that all of it was rolled out and executed. You know, led uh, led to audits, time, and time in this industry costs money, especially when you have to have assets. You know, even if it's just a lease, and so that 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 further disenfranchised people who are already disenfranchised and under resourced. And so, like, it, you know, just from the beginning of a program, and you know, I've been in this process four and a half years now. Um, it 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 has been. Um, poorly planned and even more poorly executed despite the best efforts of really good hearted people. Um, you know, I think it lends itself to, you know, what, what, what is, you know, issues with policy generally when you have people who aren't business people who don't understand the industry that they're regulating, um, you know, creating policy and trying to get reelected and trying to, you know, pacify, um, you know, activists who might not necessarily understand market conditions and also trying to pacify capital um, and, you know, the folks that lobby and invest in, in, in policymakers in order to get the outcomes that they want. Um, who's left out of that and what is left out of that is really what's wanted and needed to be effective in accomplishing what, what we're trying to accomplish. So, I mean, that, that sets the framework in terms of the right now. The right now is all a microcosm of all of those things and trying to solve those things and expedite licensing now and forcing people to have things done by certain amounts of time. That just applies more anxiety and pressure. It's not the right things to be doing right now. And the city having to, to uh, choosing the, um, uh, I think, try to incent these social equity licenses, licensees um, um, to move forward in the process at a time when the industry is really struggling and it's even harder to onboard capital uh, because the state and the city aren't aligned and the state has set some deadlines that, that um, you know, um, preempted the city to say, all right, we got we to gotta, we gotta set some urgency around moving some of these retail licenses forward, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, because of the state moratorium and its timing, rather than saying, wait a minute, you know, the state has an interest in, you know, in helping these folks who are licensed or are, you know, set up to be licensed, you know, let's, let's advocate for changing that policy in order so we can get people open in a way that allows them to have sustainable businesses. That's what we're not doing. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly a lot of dynamics going on there. Um, to maybe zoom in on one a little bit, maybe it's going to be a little bit of a broad question still, but but given the time and money needed to get a business off the ground and to work with regulators, even on a good day, um, how have you guys worked with prospective entre- entrepreneurs to attract capital? 
Um, you mentioned market forces and needing a level of uh, savviness with, with the market, with, with business practices. Given the fact that a lot of time and money is, is needed in these cases that we're talking about with, with prospective entrepreneurs, what are some ways that you've counseled um, those, those folks to, to attract that institutional capital? It, it's certainly not a, a snap of the finger. It, it takes a conversation, I'd imagine. What are some ways that, that you've worked with folks to do so? Well, you know, in fourth movement, we, we take that off the table because we take responsibility for all of that. Mm-hmm. So in other words, like we fourth movement, 100 percent finances the effort ourselves. So we um, onboard all the capital necessary to build out the footprint. And it's been difficult for us. Cannabis in California, cannabis retail is down over 30 percent year over year. You know, we're obviously we've always had the pressures on the unregulated market, but the unregulated market has gotten more savvy in terms of its sales channels. The consumer has gotten more comfortable, um, you know, not just your weed guy, but all sorts of delivery services, all sorts of different ways to be able to get product that's in the unregulated um, space where we're dealing with, you know, significantly high, uh, you know, really high taxes and um um, you know, and a cost of goods sold that, you know, and real estate costs and all of the things, you know, on the regulated side um, that increase costs that we have to pass on some of which to the consumer and that make us un- super, you know, uncompetitive as it relates to the unregulated market. So we're dealing with that. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, although um, we've had adult use in the state of California for four plus years and um uh, it's still new industry there's still until we get federal legalization and more money comes into the industry generally or is available to be in the industry and we get more institutional capital in the space um you know i, I think it's going to be really tough when that happens i think we're going to see you know a lot of consolidation a lot of change i think we're, we're we'll uh, uh, be able to be competitive with the unregulated market you're going to see capital um invested in lobbying to reduce taxes and, and, and you know um and then i think it'll be a much more lucrative business but until that time it's it's a really difficult case to make if you can't have a business um that can show that it has the kind of scale and staying power that is worth investing in the staying power then it's 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 a really difficult argument to make right now because the average unit volumes of retail are not what they were at the beginning of COVID. They're not what they were when, you know, MedMen was like kind of the first um, contemporary multi-unit retail concept, and we were looking at those AUVs and if you know if 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 companies that were going to have multi-units and scaled and had you know more. Uh, contemporary retail concepts would do the same kind. We're not doing the same kinds of volumes at all, you know, and and still having the same kind of costs. So it's just not as good of a business as it was two years ago, three years ago, four years ago. And and um, there's a lot of investors that have a wait and see attitude about you know where it's going to be. People are going to want to you know consume, and so you're seeing people on the cultivation side go out of business on the on the on the distribution side go out of business and you see a lot of retailers really struggling. Yeah, I, you know, I was maybe thinking, I was thinking about flipping this conversation around to the, to another side. We talked a bit about the public side of the conversation, um, the ramifications of raising institutional capital in a, in a difficult market like this. Um, but on the other side of that coin, of course, there are 
a lot of private companies that are enacting their own internal social equity policies. And that's a very large umbrella term, of course, that can mean a lot of different things uh, coming out of a lot of different people's mouths. Um, but there are attempts to create uh, workforce development programs, uh, you know, business incubation environments, uh, similar to what you've been describing in, in other states, uh, even strategic C-suite hires uh, to make sure that diversity is accounted for in a lot of these private businesses. Um, where do you place that uh, in, in the large social equity conversation? Um, are these self-serving policies or, or are they having ripple effects in the industry at large to create a more equitable landscape for people who want to get into cannabis? Yeah, I don't think it ever serves us to be cynical about inclusion. Mm-hmm. So if you're an MSO or you're a privately owned company and you're intentional about becoming more diverse and having more ideas, uh, more perspectives at the table. I think that's helpful. Um, you know, just in terms of the direction of the company and the, at the ethos and way of being and the decision making of a company that that may be you know more sensitive to more people and attract more people. I think it's a healthy thing for businesses. Diversity is proven to make companies more profitable. So like that, that is a good thing. And then more people from more communities get more money, more piece of the pie, more experience. That's, that It makes us all safer. It's good for society. Um, you know, that's diversity and inclusion. That's not social equity. Um, you know, social equity is about ownership um, and it's about revenue as a piece of the entire market. Um, African-Americans have less than 4% of all of the cannabis licenses across the country you know, less than one half of 1% of all the revenue, even though we've experienced north of 40% of all of the criminal justice, the ramifications of all the criminal justice. I mean, that's a problem. It's not in anybody's interest. You know, what I like to talk about or say is, you know, I'm, I'm still very civically engaged. I was at a continuation high school in South LA yesterday with young men. You can't complain about what's happening on Melrose and Beverly and uh, the increase in crime and the sensational things that we're seeing around people who are left out uh, and and grew up in these communities that were impacted by having their fathers and their mothers taken out of the home, being less competitive, having felonies because of cannabis or drugs, um, you know, made it so they couldn't rent apartments. All of the ramifications of living in under-resourced, under-loved communities and not be engaged and, 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 you know, think that it's not going to touch or impact you at some point in time. You know, it's about engagement and ownership, you know, is about people, you know, successful ownership is about people having the resources that gives them choice, send their kids to more competitive schools, actually go on vacations, <laughs> you know, exist outside of the two and a half mile radius of their home and all the things you have to navigate in poor communities, which is a lot of trauma. There's a lot of stuff most of us who love people don't want to have to, you know, have our loved ones live in and around every day. And all of that has repercussions that we all have to deal with as a society. So this thing around, you know, social equity, you know, um, which to me just means a set aside opportunity. You know, it has to be like we should be really measuring the effectiveness of each one of these licenses, who gets it. How are they positioned in order to win in this way? How are they positioned in order to compete in the marketplace? Um, um, and then hold them accountable to what do you do with that money? Yeah, you know, just you and your family 
but also reinvesting in the community and being a good steward of society. Because, you know, what we don't talk about in terms of what's also inherent in social equity policy is we're saying, okay, we're going to set aside these opportunities because society is saying, right, the city of LA, so the constituents of LA and its policymakers are saying that if we do this, um, we want to repair the ramifications of the war on drugs. So that's what needs to ultimately happen. And that doesn't happen if these licensees aren't successful. It doesn't happen if they don't have the right character. Um, you know, it doesn't happen if the right people don't get them, get the licenses. So all that has to be true. Yeah. Um, do you do you have a sense of a of a ticking clock? And to elaborate on that, what I mean is, do you have the sense that the opportunity is is right now? over the next year or so uh, in the very near future, and that there's a possibility that this industry could run away from, from that opportunity to repair the ramifications of the war on drugs, or. I think that's done. That's already gone. We're beyond that. Yeah. Uh, um, the, the, the policy that we've seen like in LA in California and a lot of cities, you know, the way that um, the opt-in policy is, you know, and local authorization works in California, um, you know, we're not going to have a very diverse industry as it relates to ownership, successful ownership. When federal legalization happens, you're going to get a lot of consolidation. And, um, you know, in Illinois, it's a wrap. You know, in Florida, it's a wrap. In um, Arizona, it's a wrap. In Nevada, it's a wrap. So, like, you know, it's that is not parity as it relates to like ownership percentages and percentages of, of revenue of the entire market. Um, um, you know, it's bad and it's not really going to get much better. Um, I think what we can advocate for is the, fo- the policy that exists now in the ways that we can improve it, we ought to improve it. In the ways that we can um, direct the conversation, the thought, and the energy towards helping people stand up competitive businesses, we ought to do that. The ways that we can identify um, bottlenecks and best practices moving forward, even for you know the alignment of social equity um, licensees, uh, you know, you know, some collectives on the supply chain side, whatever it is, like I, I we, you know, you just have to continue to be in the fight. Um, but I'm, I'm realistic about, you know, we should be trying to reach for the moon and somehow fall somewhere within the stars. But I don't have an expectation that there's going to be this is America It's a capitalistic democracy. And this is a tremendous business opportunity. And the first movers have gotten a tremendous amount of first mover advantage. They have a lot of leverage and um, they're set up to win. They're not giving it up. And there's not uh, the will in this country to really change that. Yeah, I, I think those realities are pretty stark. And, you know, to maybe further that question a little bit, I'm curious, uh, take an, an 18-year-old kid who has entrepreneurship aspirations, would like to own a business, and would like to participate somehow in, in, this, um, uh, in, this, in this, uh, this marketplace. Um, are there things that you might say that would encourage them to, to continue looking at cannabis? or might and to join the fight that we're talking about here, or are the opportunities more numerous and uh, and um, 
and engaging in, in say, the restaurant industry, which I know you have come from. And I'm, maybe I'm conflating or I'm, I'm setting up a false dichotomy here, but for someone who is young and wants to get into the space, uh, what would you say to encourage them, knowing that there's a lot of discouraging factors at play here? You know, I would say that this industry is still fledgling. It's still very new. Um, you know, would I tell somebody to get into the alcohol business? If you're passionate about it, you know, um, and if you were to get into business, somebody asked me about the restaurant business. The first question I asked them is, have you ever worked in it? Right. Have you ever worked in a restaurant? OK, well, when you did, did you get promoted? Right. You know, like uh, what, you know, what are your skill sets? Do you know people who are successful in the industry? Um, you know, at, at, at what level have you worked and competed in the business? Because if you open a restaurant on my street, you have to compete with me. I've been doing it 35 years. You know, so um, that you know, the same is true with this industry. It, it, if you uh, you know have a passion around cultivation and and, and uh, terpenes and strains and botany and all of that kind of stuff, get involved. There, there, there are places just like you said who want to diversify. Who you know, go to school, go to college, get educated, be best in class. You know, in, in terms of that, if you love cannabis, you're a consumer. You you and you're a marketer and you're creative in that space. There's opportunity in this in this industry, and it'll exist now. It exists right now, and it will also exist with consolidation. There will be more money. There will be more opportunities, and so on and so forth. And like in any industry, any other industry, if you have an entrepreneurial um, leaning, um, you will be able to see like how can you get in where you fit in in this industry and or others with your skill set. This is just industry. Uh, I mean, cannabis is a commodity and it is, um, um, you know, it will be sold like anything else is sold in this country in you know, with its nuances specific to it. But all the skill sets around coding and technology and, you know, um, marketing and branding and HR and all the other things that exist in every place else in, in, in business exist here. Um, and it will shift like society shifts, get in where you fit in, compete at a high level, be high integrity, and then, um, you know, see where you fit in terms of your aspirations and what you want to create for yourself in your life. Yeah. You know, I wanted to sort of just look ahead to, to Cannabis Conference in August, of course, in, in, of this year. Um, we're going to have a lot of folks in the audience who are business owners from across the U.S. and, and frankly, the world. Uh, as well as folks who are interested in getting into the, in the, in the industry uh, as that example in that last question. So just in terms of either action items or just thoughtful takeaways, what are you hoping that attendees go home with after the conference, after hearing you and, and the other panelists speak on this subject, what are you hoping they, they go away with thinking about or planning to do? Yeah, I think generally, you know, um, I hope people take away um, that fairness is in is in is in each and every one of our interests. You know that all that ultimately we're all in this together, um, and that there's one thing that is special and different about the cannabis industry than um, almost all other industries is the plant. You know, and the 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 fact that it has a healing. Um, quality to it 
it has a quality that I would say, you know, lends itself to us all kind of seeing our oneness. Um, so outside of the, you know, standard operating procedures, the tactics, the, the um, you know, the fundamentals of, of competing in and around business, um, the plant itself, you know, uh, induces to me, like thoughts and feelings of kind of oneness and love. And so, you know, if we can, if, if, if we can respect the plant, then maybe we can respect each other and, and get that, that, you know, um, we, we're, we're all better off when we're all better off. Yeah, I think that's a, a great reminder and, and frankly, a great ending note too, um, to just bring everything around. Um, Kareem, I want to thank you for the, the time this morning and, and certainly uh, for, for joining the show this week. It's been a pleasure getting to talk to you. My pleasure, man. Looking forward to being in Vegas with you all. And that's a wrap on another episode of Beyond the Show. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kareem Webb, the CEO of Fourth Movement out in L.A. I know I did. You know, it's always interesting to continue this conversation about social equity, diversity, inclusion all across the cannabis space. This industry really is uniquely positioned to deliver on long-held promises and to turn those promises into action. And in, in many ways, still waiting on that. But folks like Kareem and his team, uh, everyone getting into the industry and pursuing social equity licenses and lifting up others in the space are doing the good work to make that happen. So looking forward to that panel discussion out in Vegas in August. And speaking of, like I said at the top of the show, if you're listening to this on April 29th, the day this episode drops, get over to CannabisConference.com now and check out the discounts that we're offering that are expiring at midnight. Uh, you can get up to $500 off the full on-site rate. And um, like I said at the top of the episode, you're going to be there anyway. Why don't you save some money along the way? Of course, if you missed this, if you're listening late, if, uh, if you're catching this episode in early May, what have you, uh, rates will again increase on June 15th. So keep that date in mind. Uh, we're sort of increasing rates steadily between now and the show. And uh, the earlier you register, the more you can save. Like I said, we're very excited to see you out in Las Vegas. Throw your name in the ring, get registered, get your tickets, and uh, we'll see you out there in August. It's coming up very quickly. In the meantime, we're going to keep going beyond the show on this podcast series, so stay tuned.